myself situated here. If you have your Bibles, um, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Also, for anyone watching from home, you can uh, have your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi as you follow along with us. Grateful to see everyone here tonight. There's plenty of room here for those of you who are at home and you're wondering if there's room here. Yes, there is. Uh, please feel free to come and join us on Wednesday nights uh, as we uh, do this, at least through the summertime, having a time of uh, singing here and um, together and praising God in that way and then doing our, our time of Bible teaching. So please come if, uh, if you can, if you're able. And uh, so we're grateful to have this opportunity to come and, and sing praises to God and to uh, hear his word and to learn from it. And so, but before we get started, I would like to uh, have a word of prayer and to lead us into our time of study tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this singing that we had tonight. And Lord, we sing because it brings praise to you, not because we um, are all great singers or musicians, but Father, you have given us gifts and talents. You've given us the ability with voices to be able to praise your name. And we do so with the truth of scripture. And as we sang tonight, Lord, from from the Psalms and, and other truths from the scripture. Uh, how wonderful it is, Lord, that we can just proclaim that to one another and proclaim it to you. Father, that we trust you. We thank you for your salvation that is found in Christ alone. We thank you for this evening, Lord, for uh, this opportunity to gather together. We, we ask, Lord, that you would take your word and that you would um, make it affect our hearts, Lord, affect our lives that we would desire to love it and learn it more. Um, Father, that it would be very precious to us and not something to be uh, cast aside, Lord. We give you praise in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, last week, uh, we I took some time to do an introduction to the book of Malachi. And then we got into the first part, the first couple of verses there. Um, and it's, there's a lot here. And as I do this introduction, as I did the introduction, as we continue on through here, there are, are a number of times where we'll be referring back, further back to Old, Old Testament passages. And it'll sometimes seem like a bit of a history lesson. Um, but I, I think that's okay for us. It's okay for us to be forced to go back in the scriptures to see what... As Malachi speaks to God's people here, they've lived uh, this life. They've passed these things on to one another. Uh, and so for you and I to be able to look back at the word of God and see what they know, we can be brought into the time period in which Malachi is writing and have a better understanding of uh, what the people of God uh, would know and what they should be believing about God and, and how they should be um, honoring God and reacting to, to his love for them. That's what we looked at last week is this first, um, the first charge that uh, God brought against his people through the prophet Malachi. We looked at um, the, the time period in which, again, in which Malachi was prophesying was about 465 B.C. Um, we don't know exactly the time, time frame there. But we saw also that it was a burden on the prophets of God to bring the word of God to the people of God was a, was a great burden. 
and they, you know, they were not um, a loved people group, <laughs> the prophets. In fact, they, the, the people of God killed the prophets that God sent to them. Um, and we also, I also talked last week about how Malachi goes about bringing charges against the people, and that is that he makes a charge or, or a statement uh, and then, then gives basically the response of their heart. He says, we don't even need them to speak. He's saying, this is what's in your hearts. This is what comes out of your hearts. This is what you're really believing. Uh, and in, in terms of this first charge that he brings, uh, they basically are denying that God has loved them. And God says he has through Malachi. He starts out with that statement, I have loved you. But in their hearts, they're asking the question, how? Prove it. Okay? They, they're not believing that God has loved them. They're perhaps looking at all their circumstances. They've, come, they've been taken into exile. They're back now, but things are not what they used to be. Things are not what they expect them to be. They're sort of discounting the fact that they have sinned. They have rebelled against God throughout their history. And, and the reason they are where they are is because of their sinfulness. Um, and so, but instead of looking at that and still being grateful that they're there and that God brought them out of captivity, they're doing their own things and they're denying that God has ever even loved them. And if you were here last week, um, and I just want to say before we get started too, if, if as we're going along, you know, a question comes up, don't be afraid to raise your hand and, and we'll, we'll try to answer that question, okay? I know you're at home, you can't, I won't see your hand, so you can raise it if you want, but uh, you're out of luck. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. If, if there's a question that comes up, feel free to, to raise your hand. Yes. Ah, good question. Malachi chapter 1. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very important question. <laughs> uh, yeah, Malachi chapter 1. And um, I wanted to ask, just by way of reminder from last week, what was the truth statement that God used to prove he had loved his people? In that first, the first couple verses we looked at last week, what was the truth statement that God made? Okay, he, he says he has loved them, and that the factual truth statement he makes to prove that is, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, he reminds them, first of all, that Jacob, or, or that Jacob is Esau's brother. Okay, so he makes that connection there. And then he says in verses 2 and 3, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Why? Because that's what God wanted to do. They're twins, right? Yes. So what did Esau do to make God hate him? Nothing. What did Jacob do to make God love him? Nothing. Well, then how did God decide who deserved to be loved and who deserved to be hated? And remember that those terms are not used here in the way that we think of them, okay? Typically the way that we think of them. As if God based his decision on emotions or on some outward appearance or some action on the part of these twins, okay? He chose one to become the heir of his covenant uh, with Abraham and not the other. God does not flip coins or, or pluck flower petals uh, to make decisions, okay? He makes decisions according to his own perfect will. And the scriptures answer that question through uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 in talking about Jacob and Esau. In Romans 9, 11, in talking about these twins, it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, so it answers that question, that kind of that why question. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, or God's purpose of choosing might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. How did God decide? He consulted himself. He did what pleased himself. They hadn't done anything good or bad because they were not yet born. It certainly was not because he looked into the future and saw that they would do something good or bad um, because it says it was not because of works. Okay? Though, though we know that God does know the future, it wasn't based on that, on something that he saw in the future. Why then? It's because, the scripture says, because of him who calls. That's it. That is what we need to know, and that is how we need to look at it. He wanted it this way. He did it this way. He is God. In my study on this, I came across a a commentator who told a story about uh, Charles Spurgeon and an interaction he had with a woman who was struggling with this question of why God would do this. And he wrote, A woman once said to Mr. Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Okay, think about that for a second. You see, they they were both sinful men, right? Just like you, just like me. Neither of them deserving anything except God's wrath. And this is how God works. He doesn't have to ask anyone else. And we would do well to learn this and understand that that this is how the scriptures describe God, and and it's a good thing. Since there is only one God, and he is all-knowing, and he is everywhere, and he's all-powerful, and he's unchanging, and he's perfectly just and righteous and loving, is it not good that he only consults himself then? Who else would he consult? Look at what God says about, about our salvation in Christ. In Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not the counsel of anyone else's will. He didn't consult anyone else. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this should be a cause of praise Uh, to him for his glorious grace. And in fact, that passage goes on twice to say that he does this to the praise of his glory. That's the point, that that it would draw praise and glory and honor to God. And in our our story here from Malachi about Jacob and Esau, it's important that we see that there's a difference. There is a difference between them, um, but it's not a difference that caused God to choose them. It's it's the difference based on the result of God choosing. Okay, and that's what God's doing here through Malachi in pointing out to his people uh, the proof that he loved them. And so there, there has to be a distinction between Jacob and Esau. And, and God proves that. And so as we look back at the scriptures and see some different things where uh, we can see how God orchestrated things and, and this sort of back and forth that we have, we'll see how God has loved his people 
Uh, last week, we looked a little bit at the birth of the twins. We, we went to the scriptures in Genesis to look at that. Um, and there are a number of things in the scriptures uh, that record how God brought about events that show and prove that he loved his people. But like I said earlier, Jacob and Esau are both sinful men. Okay? Neither one of them are good. Uh, Jacob talked Esau into giving up his birthright for some stew uh, because he was hungry. Okay? And, and this in itself, this event in itself, sets in motion what would follow due to Esau's anger and desire to kill Jacob because of him taking his birthright. Um, we know that Esau took two wives of the Canaanite women, causing uh, a lot of grief for his parents. In Genesis 26, 34 and 35, it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, this, this brought bitterness to his parents. It, was, it would be the same kind of grief that I would have as a father if my daughters chose to marry unbelievers. I know that it goes against God's word, and therefore it's sinful and rebellious against God. It would be, bring grief to us. It's the same kind of a thing. And since his parents were not pleased with him, Esau tries later on to, uh, to fix it by marrying within the family, so to speak, by marrying his cousin. The, the problem there was that he married the daughter of Ishmael, the illegitimate son of Abraham and Sarah, uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar. Okay, in Genesis 28, 8 and 9 says, So when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, uh, besides the wives he had, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And remember when we saw um, in the scriptures, we saw Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah made Abraham cast Hagar and, their son Ish- and her son Ishmael out uh, because she, she hated them. Okay? Isaac was the child of God's promise, not Ishmael. And there was, in terms of Jacob and Esau and this, this bad relationship they had, there's a lot that could be said about it. But there, there was a time later on of, of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau as individuals. But there was always bad blood between the two nations moving forward. Okay? There, it's not just Jacob and Esau, the individuals. It's Jacob and Esau as nations as well, as the people that came from them. Um, and so I want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. If you, when you have your Bibles, just turn back to Genesis uh, chapter 36. Genesis 36. And all this is important for our passage in Malachi in, in, in showing us and reminding us the difference between Jacob and Esau and how God is using this, their knowledge of this to prove his love for them. Genesis 36. I want to look at verses 1 through 3 and then 6 through 9. Okay. Again, we're learning a little bit about, about Esau here. Uh, Genesis 36, verse 1 through 3. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Ohilabamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the scissor of, scissor, sister of Nebioth. And Ada bore Esau. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to get into all those names there. Let's skip down to verse 6. <laughs> we don't need to go to who they bore right now. Uh, verse 6. 
Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. And in my Bible, it has in parentheses here, Esau is Edom. It's, it's telling us that about him right here. And verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Okay, this is important. We're learning a little bit about, about Esau here. Not only is he Esau as an individual, but he is known in the scriptures as Edom. And all the people that came from him, the whole line, are known as Edom, as a, as a group as well, okay? So Esau takes his wives and his children and his animals, and he goes to settle in the region southeast of the Dead Sea. If you have those, a Bible with maps in the back of it, if you're like me, you like to kind of look at those things sometimes. Um, and this is the, the region there that's known as Edom, and it's south of the land of Moab, okay? And, and there are hills, there are plateaus, there's deep canyons, um, and was at one time heavily wooded and had plenty of water. And specifically, Esau settles in the hills of Seir, according to what we read. In Joshua 24, Joshua talked about the fact that it was God who gave this land to Esau when he spoke to them, saying, Thus says the Lord, Joshua 24, 4, Thus says the Lord, To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Okay, on a, on a side note here, it's interesting that we read the Genesis passage about Esau going and settling in Seir, like we just read. And we can think that it was just a, a decision made apart from God's sovereignty. But Joshua informs us, and he makes it clear, that God said to Joshua, I gave Esau the hill country. So when God says through the prophet Malachi, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert, we know what he's referring to, the, the hill country of his possession or heritage in Seir. And God gave Esau that land, and God laid waste that land. Does anybody know in terms of the area there what famous city is built in the land of Edom? You've seen it in movies. You've heard a band by the name. Petra? Sound familiar? Um, so anyway, but if you know, if you've seen pictures of that area, it is, it is not lush. Uh, it's deserty, rocky, sandy, and uh, definitely would fit the description of having been laid waste, okay? Now, after the deaths of both Jacob and Esau, as the individuals, okay, after their deaths, the people that came from their lines are still referred to in Scripture by their names, okay? Like I mentioned earlier, Esau's line settles in the area of Edom, so they become known as the Edomites, okay? Jacob's line is taken into captivity in Egypt, as we know, uh, but not before God changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. Israel, right, yeah. So they become known as the Israelites, okay? I realize this is for some of you that have been in my Bible study, and we've already gone over this, uh, it's, it's a review, but for those that weren't there to benefit from that, this is a good way to keep our, get our brothers and sisters caught up, and uh, then once we get to where we left off, we'll all be on the same page. Um, 
Still, sometimes in the scriptures, uh, Jacob's referred to as Jacob, sometimes as Israel. And we see in our text just uh, the name Edom or the name Jacob means all of the people. Okay, that's what's being referred to in our Malachi passage here is, is, yes, it's talking about the individuals, but it's also talking about the whole people group. Okay, when he says laid waste their hill country, he's talking about the Edomites, all of those people. Okay, so they, they die, Jacob and Esau die, many generations go by, including 400 years that Jacob's line is in captivity in Egypt, right? The Israelites are in Egypt in captivity, Meanwhile, during that time period, Esau's line, the Edomites, they continue to grow in population. Uh, Genesis 36 lists out uh, a lot of names of chiefs of Edom and and all the kings that were reigning uh, over the Edomites before there was ever even a single king over the people of Israel. Okay? Um, And so I want to look again at an Old Testament passage in Numbers uh, chapter 20. Turn to, to Numbers chapter 20. <clears throat> and we'll look at verses uh, 14 through 21. Okay, and this gives us sort of an indication of this bad blood I was talking about between Jacob and Esau, their, their lines, okay? Let's look at that passage in Numbers 20, starting at verse 14. Okay, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. Okay, now, Jacob and Esau are dead. The individuals are dead. Okay, but they all know each other. They all know where they come from and that they're family. Okay? Uh, and he knows that they are, in a sense, brothers. The people are brothers, in a sense. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory, Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and and if we drink your water... uh, and I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Doesn't sound like there's good blood there, right? They come and ask just to merely pass through, and they don't want to allow that, Okay. <clears throat> there's, there's constantly fighting between these two nations over the years. A sort of back and forth with Israel mostly having the upper hand because, of course, God is with them. But sometimes God would allow Edom to have victory over Israel. For example, 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14 says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And here we see an example again of, of what God said would happen in the, in the birth of the twins. Remember what we read last week, that the older will serve the younger. We see an example of that here. 
And like I said before, sometimes God allowed Edom to have victories. Second Chronicles 28, 17. It says, For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. Okay? And Edom would even play some sort of a, a role in helping or at least cheering on the Babylonian destruction of Judah and the taking into captivity of God's people. We can see the people of Judah lamenting this while they're in captivity, as it was recorded in the Psalms, Psalm 137, 7. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. They're, they're cheering on the destruction, right? As, it's almost like they're in the, in the bleachers on the sidelines, and they're cheering on the Babylonians as they take over Judah. They want to see them taken captive. But, as we see in our Malachi passage, God would, he would lay waste to Edom's hill country by the hands of other nations, by the hands of Israel, and in the end, of course, ultimately by his own hand. Ezekiel 25, 12-14, Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously, grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate from Teman to Dedan. They shall fall by the sword, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord. So we see uh, throughout the scripture that God is he's active in his creation and in accomplishing his will and his purposes. If he wanted Israel conquered, he would send a foreign army. If he wanted Israel punished, he would, he would send plagues or disease or, or, or sometimes even open up the ground to swallow them up or simply consume them with fire. He can do that. He's God, and he did it on multiple occasions. And then he does the same if he wants to bring trouble on other nations that are not his people. When, when, when we say God is in control, and we say that a lot. This is what we mean. He's, he is doing these things. God is active. Do not think that God is at the whim of any person or event. He's sovereign. At the time that Malachi was prophesying here what he is, um, I believe Edom had already been laid waste, and that is why God is holding it up to Israel as proof that he loved them and not Esau. He said, I have laid waste their hill country. Okay, look at verse 4 in our Malachi passage. And here God anticipates, through the prophet, God anticipates the attitude and response of the, that the Edomites would have um, to rebuild. God says through Malachi that the people of Edom will say, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Okay? God is the one that, that lays waste to them, and their response is to rebuild. I think this also shows the continued rebellion against the Lord by the Edomites. Uh, we can see that, that he will let them rebuild. It says they may rebuild, but what does he promise to do when they rebuild? I will destroy, or some translations may say, I will tear down. Okay? What is... The result, according to the, that passage there in Malachi 1, 
what is the result of God tearing down? Okay, yeah. The, and the people would be called something. My translation says they'll be called the wicked country. And beyond that, they will be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And these two things really describe all the enemies of God. Okay? All those who will be cast into hell by God are those with whom he is angry forever. They are a wicked people. What, is, what if anything does this reply from God, okay, what if, what if anything does this teach us about him or his character and his attributes? Think about what he says to them. He, he has torn down, they may rebuild, I will tear down and um, they will be called the wicked country. What does this reveal about God? you hadn't heard of God before and you read this, what would it tell you, what would you think about God? Persistent? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would think I do not want to anger him. <laughs> yes. He is the final authority, right? Absolutely. Yeah, these are all things that we would learn about God from this passage. He's, there's nothing in here that says he's answering to someone else or anything like that. He is doing what he will. And I, I like what you said, that he's persistent. God certainly is in the sense that what he says he's going to do, he will do it. Okay? He will bring judgment. He is sovereign. And we have to remember that through, that though Malachi is, he's the instrument here, okay, that God is using, uh, but this is the voice of God, the word of God, the Lord. It's coming to the people. It's not Malachi making something up. Okay, he's, he's saying what God has told him to say. So we must remember how God described himself before this reply. Okay? In, in the, the context of um, battle and judgment, it shouldn't be overlooked that, that Malachi tez, tells them here in our, in our passage uh, and let's look at verse 4. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. Okay, stop there for a second. It says the Lord of hosts says. What is another meaning for Lord of hosts? Maybe your translation says it differently. Does anybody have something else in their translation? Lord Almighty, okay. What was that? Lord of armies. Excellent. That's, that's the point here. And, and God is making that point through Malachi. You know, he, he is the Lord of hosts. That's, that means something. He's, he wants them to think about that. Who is this God? He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. It's not just that he has a lot of angels or that he's a, a heavenly choir director. Uh, he is the Lord of armies, the Lord of every army in heaven and on earth. They're all at his disposal. God commands them and they do his bidding. That's kind of, that's the image that God wants them to have here about himself. And what is Israel's experience then? What is their experience with God being the Lord of hosts? What are some ways that they've experienced God being 
the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Coming out of Egypt, okay? Absolutely. What else? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, with, with David, um, God was leading him, protecting him. Um, even when it was just David <laughs> against Goliath, it doesn't have to be God and a ton of people, okay? It can be just God, or God may use just one person, uh, as he did in that, in that instance, okay? There are a lot of ways. When, they, when, the, when God's people went into the promised land, um, they... You know, when they talked to Rahab, what was one of the things that Rahab said about the Israelites and the other kings of the land? Right. She even knew that here comes these people, these Israelites. And, and before they went in, remember, they were afraid. All, all the, the spies that went and spied out the land, they were afraid to go in, um, uh, fearing the people of the land. They didn't know what Rahab said later was, that all the kings of that land, their hearts melted in fear because of the God of Israel. They knew, like Vic was talking about, when God brought them out of Egypt and parted the sea, all the things that God did, they knew about that absolutely, and they knew that it was, it was their God that was leading them. And they were in fear, in great fear. God had sort of tenderized that land in that way, their enemies, for them to come in and just take them. Uh, God was leading Okay, he is the Lord of hosts. Looking at verse 5 now in Malachi 1. It says, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Your own eyes shall see this. What? What will their own eyes see? Uh, this, this destruction of Edom, this... this uh, shattering of them, the rebuilding, whatever there may be, the, the tearing down. God is, like was said earlier, persistent. He's, uh, God doesn't like lose a battle here and then have to regroup and, and, and come back at a different angle or something like that. God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's doing it all the time. And in the end, ultimately, there will be a complete destruction of Edom. And in that sense, a complete destruction of all of God's enemies, okay, and he says to them, you, your own eyes shall see this. And I believe that there, um, it doesn't mean that all the people living at that time that this message went to them would ultimately see the final result because here we are and time is still going on and they're all dead, okay? Um, but they did see it in part, at least, that, that God had laid waste the hill country, okay? Um, and they could see that God's favor was on Jacob and not on Esau. And the real significance here is that this will be seen by all Israel whenever God's final judgment comes. God will do what he has said. And instead of the current condition of their heart, which we've seen is belligerent and uh, disbelieving, uh, sort of challenging God when he makes a claim that he has loved them, and they're saying, well, basically prove it. Um, that's the condition of their heart currently. And this, this verse, verse 5, I think gives us a picture of that change of heart that will come. The, this new 
thing that will come out of them, okay? Verse 5 says they will, they will have a new outlook, basically. It'll, it says, you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And that's not what they're saying right now when Malachi is, is prophesying this to them. They're, they're a rebellious, belligerent people, but, but when God does what he says he's going to do, there will come a time when the, the words that are in their heart, the truth will be coming out that great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And these have been the words of God through Malachi to prove to his people that though they deny it uh, and their hearts and their actions deny it, he has loved them. Okay, I wanted to go back and look at all those other things in the Old Testament and talk about Jacob and Esau and why, why is that the example that he used and why is that important? Well, he chose them out of all the peoples of the earth to be a people for his own possession when he rejected all others. He could have left Jacob where he was as well. Jacob certainly didn't deserve to be chosen. And what do they do? Here God proves that, they, that he has loved them. And what do they do? They, they despise him. And that's what we'll look at next time when we see what this, this, the next charge that God brings against his people through the prophet Malachi. But I, it's kind of struck me uh, that this really causes me to want to praise God in that it's this message that we can proclaim right now and understand right now that the truth of this last statement in that, in that verse, we are those that God has gathered from beyond the border of Israel. So when it says, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, think about that for a second. We are not Israelites. Okay, we're, we're Gentiles. Okay, we're others. We would have come from uh, Edom. Okay? But God is gracious and he is merciful. And he sent his son. And he is gathering his people. He is building his church. And we can say that great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's not just Israel he's after. And he is not done with Israel. Uh, but praise God that he has has uh, sent his son to be a savior uh, of all those who would repent and put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And we can say that. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So next time we'll look at, start up in verse 6, and we'll look at this next charge that comes uh, to the people through the prophet Malachi. Let's, uh, any questions before we close? Anything that come up that you have a question about? Got like five minutes left. Nothing? All right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for tonight. And thank you for your word that we can learn from. We thank you, Lord, that um, though your people were constantly rebellious, you're not finished with them. And Lord, we know that those who put their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation... They are your children as well. We are your children who have not leaned on our own abilities and, and good works and, and things for salvation, Lord, but we know that everything we have to offer is just filthiness, Lord. But you have graciously and mercifully sent your Son and turned our hearts upon him. Lord, help us to keep our focus 
our eyes fixed on Christ. We thank you, Lord, for so many wonderful truths in your scriptures. It, it is all true, and it is all your word. It is perfect. It is infallible, inerrant. We thank you, Lord, that we can hold it in our hands. We can read it every day. We can commit it to memory. I pray, Father, that as we do so, you would, through your spirit, you would bring it to our minds, off our lips, as we encourage one another in Christ, as we share the gospel with others. Lord, that our hope would not be placed in events or politicians or groups or circumstances. The worst things could come, Father, and our hope is in Christ. You are on the throne. That will not change, and we thank you for, for the hope that we have in Christ. We praise you. We thank you. We want to give you all glory because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.